0: What is happening at the front? You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast. What is happening at the front of the Russo-Ukrainian war? Can Ukraine break Russian defense lines in the south? What are the key frontline spots, and why are they important? How are drones changing the art of war? What arms does Ukraine need and how could they change the situation on the front line? The guest on this episode of the Explaining Ukraine podcast is Mykola Biliskov, a Ukrainian military analyst, research fellow at Ukraine's National Institute for Strategic Studies and chief analyst at Come Back Alive, one of Ukraine's largest volunteer foundations. My name is Volodymyr Yermalonko, I am a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internet Ukraine, one of the most reputable Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com ukraineworld, patrons get exclusive content. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Nikola Beliskov, welcome to this podcast. Thank you for an invitation. So uh, there is, a, of course, lots of conversation about what is going on on the front line right now, or what is with Ukrainian counteroffensive. There is also a lots of publications in the international press that counteroffensive is going too slow, and therefore... Uh, people should rethink approach to it, there are good publications and bad publications. So let me ask what do you think of it, uh, what is going on the counteroffensive, and what prospects does it have?
1: Well, with regards to counter-offensive, if you're talking what's going on in the uh, Zaporizhia region, in so-called Tokmak-Melitopol axis, uh, the major development is Ukrainian attempt to enlarge the so-called bulge around robotness. So there is a number of settlements uh, around Robotina, it's uh, Novo-Prokopjevka, Varbo and uh, novo uh, that the Ukrainians are pushing towards these uh, settlements, trying to enlarge uh, this so-called bulge and in the process uh, inflicting a major damage. On uh, on the uh, Russians uh, and uh, specifically destroying Cuban uh, rocket artillery, electronic warfare, and def- air defense system. So this is a process, but we shouldn't forget that there is another, uh, like Ukrainian attempts to move on, and they are taking place uh, around uh, Bakhmut. And uh, recently we've had uh, some local successes liberating uh, Andreevka and Kleshevka and pressing Russians uh, to the east of these uh, two settlements. So there are two processes ongoing, but of course the major major access is uh, Tokmak-Melitopol. And uh, uh, with regards to the second part of your question about the prospects, uh, and there is a very interesting situation, so there is expert consensus that... Um, the balance of attrition would be the most important factor so, so who is able to inflict major damage on the other side while preserving as much forces as possible so everyone is saying this kind of thing but no one is going to say when it's going to happen when we are going to uh, see the end result some people are emphasizing weather but as for me it's a, a bit secondary um, a secondary factor in, in in an ongoing process especially With the way of war we are waging that emphasizes not not a movement, not a swift movement, but uh, destruction of uh, specific weapon system, uh, priority targets and so on. So that's a very, very interesting situation. But it's it's natural, um, because for me people uh, are asking too much out of military analysts, because... People have in mind military analysts who mostly uh, written analysis post-factum when they knew result, And that's why for them it was much easier to reconstruct uh, the process in reverse and to uh, show all, uh, all, all the major factors they played the role and so on. So that's why it's my ki- kind uh, ask uh, out of everyone. So be a little bit uh, more kind, uh, more, more humble when you ask uh, people about ongoing process. It's a natural.
0: You talk about the southern dimension, the southern vector, and uh, I assume that people who listen to our podcast not necessarily understand why these two vectors are important, the southern and the eastern. So why this, um, this attack, Ukrainian attack, on uh, such, uh, such villages that you named, like Robotene, with an idea of going more to the south, to the sea of Azov, why is it important? Uh,
1: this is the most promising direction in terms of uh, hypothetical returns. So there is uh, a lot of pros and little cons uh, that directed us uh, specifically at this part on the front line. So there is a lot of arable land, there is the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power station. There is a possibility if we are successful in liberating fully Kherson and uh, Zaporizhia regions to be on the Isthmus and by this to strengthen our negotiation position. Our bargaining position with regards to Crimea. There is, of course, uh, the prospect of shortening the front line if we are successful. There is uh, that's why a lot of uh, uh, prospects, uh, a lot of pros, why uh, we directed resources. The only problem is that uh, it was also obvious to the Russians. So Russians might not be the fi- fighting that great, uh, especially in offensive. But uh, they still have officers, so-called officers that are good at operational art, and they. Calculated uh, rightly where uh, Ukrainian next major strike is going to be, and that is the downside of all the pros, because they are also obvious to our enemy, and uh, that is the major major part of the front line upon the result on which uh, the whole campaign depend on going. I mean, 2023 campaign depend. Uh, the situation that is going around Bakhmut is uh, quite different. One, so for for Ukraine, it's an attempt to pin as much Russian forces as possible, uh, while simultaneously um, concentrating major major resources in the the Parisia. And we we try to exploit the fact that uh, the price of taking control of Bakhmut was that great for Russians and despite the fact that uh, nah, well um, the, the 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 prospects of what we can gain is very limited because there is only ruins of bakhmut unfortunately but uh, we exploit the fact the symbolic importance of bakhmut and we try to be in as much russian forces as possible but it is uh, games that two sides can play unfortunately and we've seen also russian attempts to do the same kind of scenes but to the north of bakhmut around the, uh, Kupyansk-Svatová uh, uh, direction and uh, that's why this is a game that two sides can play.
0: To understand you correctly that the major strike of Ukrainians is the South, then Russians try to divert Ukrainian forces by attacking in Kharkiv region around Kupyansk and then Ukrainians are trying to divert Russian forces by attacking in Bakhmut or maybe Bakhmut can be much more important for both Ukrainians and Russians than we think.
1: Mm, well, even if we are successful uh, around Bakhmut and uh, we're able, like, to push Russians out and regain control of Bakhmut, it's uh, not as strategically important as uh, recovering South Mainland for reasons I, I've named already. And yes, it's a interesting game uh, with. Uh, i would suppose more or less comparable forces a uh, grouping of forces uh, when uh, both try to disbalance the other side and we are doing it not only around bakhmut uh, but also in uh, vicinity of uh, kherson and the russians are trying to do it around kupiansk uh, but of course it's not only about pinning pinning down ukrainian forces around kupiansk uh, this direction is more promising but luckily the russians they don't have a major grouping of forces because if Russians are successful around Kupiansk, it's not only replaying the results of Balakliya kupiansk offensive operation uh, by Ukrainian forces were successful last year operation, but it's also uh, creating a flanking strike for the grouping of forces in precisely Zaporizhia region. That's why this um, publication in Western media in the first uh, part of uh, August uh, that said that, well, Ukraine uh, distributed forces not that wisely and uh, overemphasized Eastern Ukraine. As For me, it's... Uh, uh, it's a bit ungrounded to put it mildly because uh, anyone who look at the map understands that if we don't defend uh, Eastern Ukraine and especially Kupiansk area, it means a major threat to our grouping of forces in uh, Zaporizhia uh, direction. That's why we need to balance these two directions. And that's a very interesting game. Both sides want to play. And as we see, no one is that much successful because there is a tacit agreement between two sides that, uh, Tokmak-Melitopol direction is the most important, most consequential one and uh, everyone wants to be successful in that direction despite attempts at other directions.
0: I know it's stupid a little bit to ask for forecasts and you already said to be the modest when when we talk to military analysts but still when you look at the progress of the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the south Uh, and about the idea of cutting the Russian troops in in two parts in the south and going to the sea of Azov. Do you think it's realistic this year, next year?
1: I I will put it in different ways because I don't like making forecasts. I mostly like to talk about tendencies and forecast is um, very uh, unpleasant and grateful business to do. I would say the following way. First, if we successful in pushing to the environs of Tokmak till the end of the year, it would be a very successful operation, uh, given uh, all the constraints and objective conditions. And uh, if we can uh, like defend this bulge, that would be created. And if we uh, strike Russians, because again, for attrition warfare, uh, the most important thing is ammunition you have. Uh, weather, of course, is important, because there are some cloudy days that uh, make it impossible to do aerial reconnaissance, but still. So uh, we can strengthen this bulge, defend it, uh, treat Russians as much as possible, especially uh, these priority targets in the system of defense, uh, and also in general make it difficult for them to regroup, uh, and at the same time hone uh, reserves, train reserves, and can return to this operation at the... Mm, at the end of the first quarter at the beginning of the second quarter of the next year so there are still uh, chances that the next year if we are again provided with proper means Uh, we would be successful and that's uh, precisely a very important thing to emphasize so if um, the problem is lack of uh, combat proficiency in ukrainian forces uh, of course it's very easy to direct criticism at ukrainian forces but there is nuances uh, with regard to the training program but if it's attrition warfare the most important thing where is the ammunition and that's why it's about responsibility of our partners because let's be honest we gained precious times 18 months is. a Great amount of time, and that's why it's like transferring responsibility first and foremost on our partners. So that's why for attrition warfare, weather is not as important as for major swift maneuvers, and uh, there is uh, well little prospect for them. And uh, there is still a chance that we can like um, take these positions around Tokmak uh, prepare and renew uh, like this offensive push, slow offensive push at the uh, beginning of the next year, and finally uh, push Russians out of the South mainland.
0: So y- next year, Russians had huge, uh, uh, huge, well, outnumbering Ukrainians hugely in terms of ammunition, right? Uh, I was I was hearing the number. Maybe you will correct me about six, sixty thousand shells per day, uh, and and now Russians are. Getting lower with this, while Ukrainians are getting more munition, including from the partners, and there is a kind of parity parity in our artillery. Is that true? Uh, and what are what are the prospects in this warfare?
1: What in, What I can say for sure is that in this offensive, our partners did it best, and the rate of fire is unprecedented from Ukrainian side. So, 8,000 shells a day it's uh, the maximum because. Uh, like in uh, June last year it was only 3.5-4 thousand shells at best, now it's uh, two, two times much. But uh, again, there is, uh, there is a difference in philosophies how we employ uh, artillery. So Russians, they still uh, emphasize mass, but uh, we all alone emphasize precision. And that's why uh, even if Russia is using more ammunition, and there, there was an assessment, very interesting one, that uh, according to some sources, Russians are going to use approximately 7 million shells during 2023 campaign. So even if Russians are using more ammunition, it's not allowing for them to translate this uh, bigger rate of consumption into results on the battlefield. So that is uh, the current situation and with regards to the prospect, uh, 2024 would be the period of the most uh, intense uh, hunger shelf for, for both sides, I would say. Russia is facing problems in increasing ammunition uh, production and both uh, import from the North Korea and also our partners they need time to increase the amount of uh, production of munitions so next uh, year campaign uh, would make both sides to improvise to look for symmetrical solutions like VPV drones Uh, and then situation might look uh, different uh, especially for Ukraine when at the beginning of the 2025 uh, US would be able to produce, uh, sweeping uh, 100,000 shells a month, uh, and that's uh, uh, more than minimum requirement for for Ukraine. So that's uh, that's why uh, next year would be difficult by both sides. But uh, if we endure till 2025, it means that our requirements, minimal requirements, would be meted.
0: What about drones? Because uh Initially, like, the fo- I had the impression that the focus of Ukrainian demands to partners was about, you know, heavy equipment, like armoured vehicles, tanks, um, etc. Now we see that with these huge minefields that Russians have built, the the, the tactics is changing. So it's it's about artillery, of course. It's about long-range artillery. It's about drones. Very important thing. It, and it's about infantry. And... Uh, Am I correct saying that more important are now not tanks and armoured vehicles, but drones plus artillery?
1: I would say that uh, it was important all alone. So from the day one uh, Ukraine emphasized uh, precise artillery and that's very unfortunate development that in the first months of this big war like, like anti-tank weaponry was emphasized at the expense of artillery, despite the fact that uh, improved artillery was the main factor that allowed us to foil Russian plans. Then, of course, there was big battle for Donbass, first big battle for Donbass, and, and then it was again artillery. And uh, now, and, and in general, it's artillery war. Uh, If we are talking about like uh, this is at service, this is at segment of the armed forces, it's artillery war all alone, with neither side being able to establish so-called superiority. That's why artillery bears disproportionate responsibility for inflicting a damage destruction. And uh, artillery is very important. That's why, basically, if we want to understand the trajectory of this conflict, we need to keep in mind, since uh, first is the production rate, and then, of course, the way these uh, munitions are employed. So this is important all alone, and uh, uh, it's most important priority. And uh, UAVs for them to, again to to do precise fire instead of massive fire. Uh, UAVs are very important one. And that's very unfortunate development. As for me, that um, uh, Ukraine and also uh, Russia, both of them are um, relying on Chinese UAVs, not in on Western UAVs, but on Chinese UAVs in a specific segment. That's very unfortunate development. That our Western partners say, um, like, don't possess this uh, production capacity proper one to sustain us. So that's. But uh, dro- drone sim is very. Tricky, complicated, and we can discuss it. I don't know for for four let, hours. Let, let's try to discuss. So UAV, can you just decipher this word for our audience? Uh, is it the uh, same as drone? Uh, well, it's uh, drone is more general for me because uh, so-called uh, autonomous uh, unmanned uh, platforms they can be employed in different domains. There are unmanned surface vehicles employed successfully by Ukraine at sea. There are some ground platforms, despite their limitations, unmanned ground platforms. And there is, of course, segment of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, the, the biggest uh, segment, uh, the most uh, widespread. And there are, of course, different um, UAVs uh, in different niches. So there is UAVs employed for tactical reconnaissance. It's mostly Chinese drones or, or pr- produced by uh, DJI. There is uh, uh, UAVs uh, like employed by so-called brigade artillery groups, with uh, for for their reconnaissance uh, at the depths of like 20-25 kilometers, and uh, we have our own indigenous um, uh, examples of UAVs like uh, Laleka 100. There is also some US-provided UAVs of this type like Puma. And there is so-called operational tactical UAVs we employ for reconnaissance at depths like uh, 65, 70, 80 kilometers. Uh, Again, we have um, like shark UAVs uh, produced uh, during this war or PD-2 UAVs which we combine with uh, HIMARS, because last year, for instance, there was the situation when we have HIMARS, but we don't have our own indigenous reconnaissance capability, and we relied greatly on our partners. And now we have Shark, UAV, and uh, as we see, there are different uh, aerial vehicles on our side employed, there is of course a segment of so called kamikaze uavs uh, unfortunately russians uh, have uh, in some in some cases more um, more, more important more threatening uh, types of weaponry like uh, lancet uh, with a range of uh, 40 kilometers. Uh, there is, uh, again, UAVs employed widely by both sides, the so-called first-person view UAVs that are combined with uh, uh, with projectiles uh, from the granite launchers that are quite successful. But the problem is that both sides understand the potential and uh, our initial developments in this field, they are more or less nullified because Russians are also employing them extensively. So this is uh, the war that uh, seen the most extensive employment UAVs uh, in uh, different roles, uh, different dimensions and uh, it created the effect of uh, persistent surveillance at the tactical level, at the operational tactical level, changing um, the understanding how you successfully wage war under conditions of persistent surveillance. uh, Proving, of course, the tendencies we already see in other conflicts, but most visibly um, we've seen such uh, extensive deployment of uh, uavs uh, change in war precisely in uh, russian ukraine big war
0: uav means unmanned aerial vehicle right right so ukrainians have been recently very successful in, in using them we have all seen the information about attacks even on moscow right in very long 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 range uh, targets recently ukrainians uh, uh, targeted the major Russian ship which is called Minsk, right? Was it also for, with UAV or from rocket? Uh, it was
1: uh, using uh, if our uh, air forces uh, are saying truth again they hinted that uh, Scalp Storm Shadow was employed and you have mentioned another segment of UAV I forget that I used for the so-called uh, long-range strikes for strategic so-called strategic strikes and yes we also uh did a great success a great progress that need to be emphasized because there is unfortunately a huge asymmetry in this war because war is going on ukrainian territories there is uh 850 kilometers active front line uh of fighting again our some of our territories are occupied Russia is able to strike for the whole depths of Ukrainian territories, and uh, unfortunately, some of our partners, they impose unilateral constraints on Ukraine. And uh, war, uh, if you want to win, uh, you need to transfer war on the enemy territory. And despite the constraints imposed on Ukraine, we improvised and we trying to uh, transfer as much war as possible in Russian territories, destroying a whole set of uh, targets. Uh, And again, it needs to be emphasized. We are destroying military related targets. So we, unlike Russians, we are not targeting civilian infrastructure, critical infrastructure. We are strictly targeting military infrastructure. So we are targeting oil refineries and oil storage facilities. We are targeting military industrial complex enterprises, we are targeting air defense system, as we've seen. We are targeting uh, logistics, command and control. And of course, there is symbolic uh, strikes as, as it happened with regards to Moscow. But mostly we are doing our best in terms of undermining Russian ability to generate, sustain and employ grouping of forces, inter-service so-called grouping of forces employed against Ukraine. It's very important difference that need to be emphasized, and uh, again, um, this whole idea that you you can uh, like impose constraints on the one side that is uh, doing a defensive operation—it's uh, artificial. It's 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 a nonsense. I, I'm sorry, it's a nonsense. And that's why we are overcoming these constraints. And the most important feature of this 2023 campaign is uh, uh, deeper and deeper strikes against Russian military-related targets. Uh, Unlike in 2022, and we are moving in the right proper direction because uh, otherwise uh, we don't have a chance to prevail. And uh, it was emphasized uh, last year an article of uh, Valeriy Zalurzny and now his deputy uh, Mykhailo Zabrowski that uh, if you are not able to switch war to the other side, uh, you you'll never go into prevail.
0: Yeah, uh, I do remember very well that that article. Actually, it was it was really great. But the fact that Ukrainians are striking Russian territory under this band of using Western weapons to strike Russian territory, that actually means that Ukrainians are striking Russian territory with its own weapons. And uh, we, uh, we have recently seen very, you know, very, very much impressive, impressive things, which I already mentioned. And then there was a strike on uh, the headquarters of the Black Sea, uh, Russia still in Crimea. Can we say that Ukrainians are really doing well in terms of new technologies, in terms of developing their own uh, long-range missiles, in terms of developing their UAV uh, technologies? Uh,
1: yeah, some things they were constructed during this this war. So there was no such uh, products like Bobar, Beaver uh, before, before 24th of February. Uh, there was uh, civilian employment of UJ-22 uh, and uh, we are trying to create uh, the land attack version of anti-ship cruise missile Neptune. So some um, of these products they were before the war but now employed differently or further developments or strictly developed from scratch uh, since uh, the first day of the big war and we are doing our best uh, and uh, Again, uh, the only limitation is uh, the production capacity and the subcomponents, because the situation is the following one, so both Ukrainian and Russian, of course, our Western partners, all of us are scrambling for uh, subcomponents uh, from the same base, and you can't quickly uh, increase the production capacity, and that is one of the bottlenecks. But we are doing our best, uh, and uh, we are creating for Russians real dilemmas, because some people are still trying to make sense what are the tasks, luckily, our um, both what's going on uh, in real life and some statement by our representatives, like our representatives of Main Intelligence Director direct, Military Intelligence of Ukraine, uh, they are now emphasizing that one of our end goals uh, is uh, to create as much dilemmas for Russian air defense as possible and make Russians uh, think very hard where to place the air defense assets because yes russia is a country with the biggest amount of air defense assets but uh, the task they need to solve with this air defense assets is also huge so they need to defend this inter-service group of forces, it's one in another temporary occupied Crimea as a logistical base for the southern part of this grouping of forces and Russia proper. And that's why we're actually creating the same dilemmas Russians created for us, because we also have this dilemma how to distribute uh, air defense boats to cover the frontline information and the country, and that's also one of the things how situation change in Ukrainian favor. For sure, it's... Uh, not the progress on the land people expect, but it's really important development along with the strikes involving temporarily occupied Crimea. So uh, when people don't see major changes on the front lines that uh, the front is not moving in Ukrainian favor, it doesn't mean that the tides of war are not moving in Ukrainian favor. There is a lot of evidence to prove otherwise.
0: When you look at the, at the Western partners, we understand that how much we are dependent on not only on supplies, but also on their capacity to produce. And there were lots of also conversation. I think it's Ryan Metal, the German uh, company, is going to, uh, was suggesting to create production on the territory of Ukraine. So when you look into the future, first, do you see that Ukraine will be able to produce its own weapons under the situation when all the production capacities, facilities, are actually targets for Russian missile strikes? And secondly, do you see the uh, the willingness and the, the certain changes in our partners that they are ready to you know to sustainably produce as many weapons as Ukraine
1: needs There is a lot of positive pieces of news with regards to military-industrial complex and the development of weaponry. It's not only about Rheinmetall, it's also about bio-systems. It's also about, uh, I suppose, Raytheon uh, and Lockheed Martin that are producing air defense uh, system, missile defense components. Uh, So a lot of uh, entities, they demonstrate interest. And actually, it's a part of model our partners... um, to some extent, chosen for us because there is a model of uh, NATO membership, but unfortunately, our partners don't want to shoulder risk uh, this way, and they emphasize uh, increasing Ukrainian own uh, capacity to defend itself, also through military-industrial complex cooperation. I hope we finally move out of the model of military-industrial complex we have uh, for the 30 years of uh, regaining independence, because most of our military-industrial complex it uh, functioned as a kind of autarky, as a separate entity with no major connections, with no major production with Western entities. So uh, that's why all the things align. And um, despite the fact that, yes, Russia theoretically is able to strike Ukraine through the whole depths of its territories, but uh, our air defense is strengthening, And uh, we know about the plans to produce as much as uh, 15 batteries in some of NASAMs, Some of them we have already, some of them being produced by the US, uh, but also by Canada. I mean, Canada is contracting this or Norway is contracting. So air defense is strengthened and uh, we'll be able to guarantee uh, the the, the entities protect them using surface-to-air missiles. Also fighters, our uh, pilots uh, are going to master soon uh, at scale. So that's not a uh, big, big problem, so we can remedy uh, this uh, threat and uh, that's uh, the that's situation that we can, we can tackle and that's very indeed very important it this model of security our partners uh, think, in, uh, think about, have in mind when they talk about Ukraine and i hope we finally be integrated into western military industrial complex uh, and uh, follow the model of poland because uh, polish military industrial complex they didn't pretend that we can produce everything they uh, mostly they uh, sign a lot of contracts and then uh, have some offset uh, agreements to produce some components and uh, that is uh, the model we should look at instead of thinking we can produce everything so we can uh, minimize the threat of uh, missiles and uh, that is precisely, I hope we are going to see that uh, there would be a lot of co-production, a lot of uh, Western entities uh, producing ammunition uh, in Ukraine, uh, producing platforms in Ukraine to fully realize Israeli model. But by the way, Israeli model, it's not only um, about a deterrence capacity, but it's about ability to transfer war in the enemy territory. Because that's why, if you want to have Israeli model as it was discussed in Western media, so please uh, be co- uh, be comfortable with Ukrainian transferring war in enemy territory if enemy is so stupid to start another war.
0: Let me also ask about the fighter jets that you already mentioned. So there was there is a do- very long conversation about the fighter jets, in particular F-16. Why is it so much important for Ukraine right now? Why is Ukrainians stressing so much on this issue?
1: Because uh, uh, the air domain is uh, the most uh, consequential one. So when uh, this war started, if you look at the DOD reports, the first thing they always emphasize is that Russia is not able to establish a superiority. It's not able to freely use piloted aviation. And uh, that is a result of successful employment of the so-called air denial strategy when you create a very high bar, a lot of risk for your enemy to use piloted aviation. Because piloted aviation is the most important, because all these missiles, UAVs, they are one-way scenes. So you shoot them and you need to produce it uh, uh, again on you. But, but piloted aviation, if you establish air superiority and is able to use it freely, Uh, It means uh, that you can continue to do this bombing campaign, as we've seen in Mariupol, unfortunately. So for Ukraine, uh, it's uh, important to continue this air denial strategy. And for air denial, you need both uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, and luckily there is a lot of uh, work done, or a lot of plans already published. But you also need fighters, because you're not able to create this... uh, Shield all over Ukraine. There would be gaps uh, around this uh, surface-to-air missiles because most of them has uh, a range of uh, like uh, up to 50 kilometers. Only Patriot is uh, like up to 100 kilometers. So there is there would be gaps in in these surface-to-air missiles, and you need to cover them with fighter jets and uh, these fighter jets are important uh, to uh, deter russian piloted aviation both uh, to come uh, in depths of ukrainian airspace but also recently russians they improvised they start uh, to use uh, the uh, so-called aviation bombs correct aviation bombs uh, and um, it's a very uh, crude analog of joint directed and munition extended range so uh, wings are attached, and the Russians are able to do a, a standoff strike. So they release this uh, uh, improvised munition, and then it fly like to like 40 kilometers, uh, and then target uh, target any kind of uh, land target. I'm for- I'm sorry, for tautology. And the Russians are uh, actively employing them around Orichov, for instance, uh, Orichov uh, in the Persian region. So it's uh, about both creating and upholding as much risks for Russian piloted aviation. It's also about uh, shooting down uh, Russian cruise missiles because uh, raiders uh, of F-16s are much more powerful, they can track more targets simultaneously at bigger ranges, including uh, cruise missiles. And also they have better air-to-air missiles with active radio homing so so, cold, so they can strike uh, these cruise missiles. And also they can uh, keep at ranges as far as possible uh, Russian piloted aviation that employed this very crude version of joint direct attack munition extended range.
0: Maybe my last question. Everybody now among our partners is, of course, afraid of the uh, nuclear war. So the Russians, you know, applying the nuclear weapons. What can you say
1: to this fear? Uh, it's it's you rightly framed it as for me. So Russian is Russia is already successful, unfortunately, to a certain extent. Without employing this this weaponry, and its most potent uh, weaponry in Russian arsenal, despite the fact that it's not used, because uh, it had a major negative impact on uh, shipment of ma- weaponry. Some of them were postponed, uh, some of them were provided in uh, uh, lower quantity or with restrictions. And uh, despite the fact that, luckily, we have a major progress in weaponry capabilities, so we have green light for F-16s, we are on the verge of receiving short-range ballistic missile attacks. I'm sure that we are going to receive it after all these reports, but still it's working with regards to Ukraine NATO membership, and uh, I don't know how to how to overcome this problem. So we need to credit Biden with, uh, as I say, it's a nuclear emancipation, emancipation of the threat of unconventional escalation employed by Russia, but still they have some potency, as we've seen with regard to question of Ukraine, NATO, Membership Usually when I asked, uh, I, I say this way. So in Ukraine, we are not fearful of anything because we're not fearful both of tactical nukes because uh, in some instances you won't say for sure whether conventional munitions were used or tactical nukes were used to destroy. There is no Marinka, for instance. And uh, looking at the rumbles and what is left out of Marinka, you can say what was employed, whether it's... Uh, conventional munitions or tactical nuke uh, of the scales that was employed against Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And also uh, Russian threat of strategic escalation with regard to Ukraine is not working because this escalation dominance uh, strategy employed by Russia, it's uh, based on the following idea. So I'm going to scare my enemy given the existential stakes, but Ukraine is already waging an existential war. You can't like make Ukraine to step back, uh, threatening nuclear annihilation, when if we stay back, it's uh, conventional annihilation. That's why in Ukrainian case it's not working, and we've seen it. The only problem is that it still has some impact on our partners' thinking, especially with regard to, uh, to uh, Ukraine NATO membership. And, uh, well, again, most people agree that it's, it's a bluff, but uh, no one is going to call this bluff. That's very unfortunate development. And really, I don't know after more than a year of advocating, so don't be fearful. I don't know what to do to drive our partners to the idea. Don't be afraid. There is nothing Russia is going to do, especially as it would be a suicide for Putin, because even Russian partners, the countries that nominally take a neutral position, but actually it's more Russia leaning position, even these countries like China, like India, they made clear that breaking nuclear taboo is not right thing. So if Putin do it, he would be a real pariah. And this is the scene he is precisely fearful and he would be a real outcast. Uh, And uh, at at that stage, uh, no one is going to argue against regime change, uh, against one who breached nucleotable. But unfortunately, no one is going to call this bluff earnestly and escalation management still very important consideration in uh, policy pursued by by Biden administration.
0: And truly the
1: last question, what does Ukraine need to win this war? And there is uh, two factors, Oh no, three factors. The first and most important thing is, of course, to preserve uh, social cohesion inside Ukraine and uh, Ukrainian readiness and and will to fight. Because if this will to fight evaporates, for sure, our partners will start to push us forcefully for, for negotiations. Uh, so the most important thing for us is to preserve this unity, because if we preserve it, uh, no one is going to openly push Ukraine for negotiations, and the only other option is to increase the production capacity for for the weaponry and munitions. Of course, uh, important factor is uh, precisely this production of uh, munitions, because uh, uh, mostly uh, this 18 months uh, will sustain us with... Um, Uh, the stock uh, created during the peaceful times and uh, they still have a lot of work to do to increase this production capacity Uh, and the last and most important thing is to uh, pursue sound military strategy because unfortunately uh, escalation management it's it's in total contravention to the sound military strategy because sound military strategy is very simple and and very very straightforward, so you need to destroy enemy to inflict a major damage quicker than enemy is able to regroup and uh, recuperate. Unfortunately, uh, escalation management, as we've seen, it's about risk-taking, it's about uh, being very cautious, uh, probing uh, attempts uh, how enemy uh, or opponent is going to respond, that's why a lot of opportunities were lost valuable time was lost uh, russia was able to regroup russia was able to create defense in depth so the three things for ukraine to uh, win this war is uh, internal cohesion internal unity uh, more production capacity and uh, finally uh, policy that emphasize sound military strategy instead of escalation management if these three factors align we we are able to uh, gain so-called strategic initiative and uh, conduct uh, at least one major uh, offensive operation to encircle and destroy at least uh, uh, part of russian group in forces and by this to drive uh, a message to drive a lesson to the russians that uh, even like prolonging this war or stalemate is not an option so please negotiate on the position of uh, full restoration of ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity
0: mikhail thank you for this podcast
1: thanks for interesting talk
0: This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermalenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the most reputable Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com ukraineworld, patrons get exclusive content, you can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at PayPal. Ukraine dot resisting gmail.com Stay with us and stand with Ukraine